morning, Grace. Please take your Bibles and turn to Ruth chapter 4. And let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God, with us. Thank you that you came down to us in the person and work of your Son. And we long for his final coming where he will restore everything and make everything that was wrong. He will make right. He will make everything new. And we long for that day, God. We trust in you this morning. Um, we take comfort from your word in Psalm 147. It says that your delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor your pleasure in the legs of a man or a warrior, but you take pleasure in those who fear you and those who hope in your steadfast love. And Father, we confess that we fear you this morning. We hope in your hesed, your steadfast love, your loyal covenant love. And because we hope in that, God, your word says that that brings you great pleasure. And what an awesome thought to think that it brings you delight and it brings you joy when your people come before you. And they fear you and they honor you and they hope in your great love, which is ultimately manifested in the cross and the resurrection of your son. So take great pleasure today, God, as we delight and hope in your great love for us. We freely admit this morning that we are all needy sinners and we desperately need your grace. And may you get great glory as we come humbly saying, you are our everything. I ask that by your spirit now, God, you would open our eyes to see wonderful truths out of your word. That we would be transformed by your grace. And that we would go extend your grace to others. Help us now because we are needy in Jesus' name. Amen. Courtrooms are interesting places. Some of you have served on jury duty before, or maybe you're in the selection process, so you know what I'm talking about. Chuck Swindoll tells an interesting story of a time when he was almost selected for jury duty. I don't know if you know who Chuck Swindoll is. I'm sure most of you do. He's a, uh, one of our great preachers and authors. He was uh, at E.V. Free in Fullerton for so many years. Now he's at Stonebriar Community Church in Frisco, Texas and in North Dallas. Uh, You've probably heard him on the radio with his radio program that is worldwide now, Insight for Living. Uh, He was a president of Dallas Seminary while I was there. Uh, I love Chuck Swindoll for several reasons. One, he is a great communicator. I mean, He's, it's the proverbial saying that you would listen to him read a phone book because he's that good. Um, and I don't listen to him that much because, it's, frankly, it's depressing. Because, I mean, he's it as far as communication. Um, so I love him because he's a great communicator. It's like when I hear him preach, it's like having your like, granddad, your grandfather talking to you. I love He's just a great communicator. I love him also because when he was president of Dallas Seminary, he changed the dress code. Uh, prior to his arrival, the men had to wear a suit and ties, and if you don't know this about Texas, it gets about 110 every summer, and he said, what are we doing to these men? Let's make it business casual. So he did, so we had got to lose the suit and tie, and so I've never thanked him publicly, so Chuck, if you're listening, thank you, and 
stop the sermon now and don't listen anymore. I love Chuck Swindle. He has this interesting story about serving on jury duty. He says the room was full of about 35 people. The case before them was one concerning a woman who uh, was being charged with a DWI charge. Here's the, the, the catch, though. This was her fourth time for, being, for getting a DWI, and she hit somebody with her car. And I don't know if she hit somebody walking or she hit someone in her car, but this is her fourth time, and she actually hit someone. So her attorney shows up. Wearing a lime green suit, a chartreuse tie, and white ostrich boots. Chuck said he was thinking to himself that this was about to get very interesting. So her attorney starts in on the jury asking questions, trying to weed out you know, pretend, uh, potential problem people. And he says, does anyone have a problem with what this lady has done? So Chuck raises his hand. Yeah, I've got a problem with that. And then Chuck looks around and notices that nobody else has their hand up. And he's thinking, did you guys hear the question? So the attorney looks down the list and says, oh, uh, you're Mr. Swindle? Chuck replied, yeah, that's close enough. That's me, Mr. Swindle. And the attorney says, so you have a problem with what this lady has done. And he's pointing at his client. Yeah, I have a problem with what she's done. This is her fourth DWI and she hit someone. And Chuck said, the lady was staring at me with these evil eyes. He says, yes, I have a problem with what she's done. And then Chuck said, but more than that, I had a bigger problem that nobody else was raising their hands saying that they had a problem with what this lady had done. So the attorney writes it down. Mr. Swindle has a problem with my client. Then he asked the jurors, does anybody have a problem with the least possible punishment for my client? No one said or did anything. So... Chuck raises his hand. The attorney says, do you have a question, Mr. Swindle? Yes, I would like to know what the least possible fine would be. He was thinking perhaps a month or two in jail, a year, maybe life, you know. And the attorney said that the least possible fine would be one dollar. You know what happened next, don't you? Chuck raises up his hand. He thought, if she can walk out here after what she's done and only have to pay $1, then I have a problem with that. And the guy sitting next to him leans over and says, hey, I really admire you. Chuck says he thought to himself, you dodo, why don't you stick your hand up if you admire me so much? Well, within a few minutes, Mr. Swindle was dismissed from the group. Courtrooms can be interesting places. Chuck said he drove away thinking that that case was going to be decided by 12 people who never raised their hands, never stood up for truth, and never did what was right. As we come to today's passage, we will observe an ancient Near Eastern Israelite courtroom scene, and we'll see how one individual stands up for what is right and does the right thing, even when it costs him greatly. Boaz will do the hard thing. Boaz will do the right thing. He'll reveal through his actions of redeeming Naomi and Ruth, he will reveal where his treasure is. And by the time we get to the end of the sermon, you'll probably begin to put together that Boaz is a picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us in redeeming us out of our plight as sinners under the wrath of a holy God. Our big idea that Boaz will teach us today is this, grace changes 
everything. I think that Boaz had experienced the sovereign Lord, Yahweh's grace in his life. Because remember when he showed up in the fields, he said, the Lord bless you. When he's talking to Ruth, he says, may you find shelter and protection under Yahweh's wings. So I think Boaz is a man who has experienced God's grace in his life. He has come to grips with the gospel and understanding that he is a sinner who is separated from a holy God, but that God has remedied that problem through sacrifice, through slaying a lamb, and ultimately it's a picture of Jesus Christ. I'm going to argue today that Boaz has experienced the grace of God, and it's changed his perspective on the situation that he finds himself in as he's presented with the case of redeeming Naomi and Ruth. Grace changes everything. God's grace releases radical, risk-taking love. God's grace, when you rub it down into your pores and you get it down into the nooks and crannies of your heart, God's grace frees you from your slavery to self. Grace breaks the shackles of your love affair with yourself. And if you're thinking, I'm not in love with myself, let me ask you, What did you do and think and say yesterday? It's probably all driven because you are madly in love with yourself. Grace frees you from your love affair with yourself. Grace liberates you from safety and security. Grace catapults you out of the kingdom of self into the kingdom of God. Grace opens up your eyes to see that to die to self, to die to your own wants and wishes is actually what it means to truly live. Grace will enable you to look to the interests of others and to consider them better than yourself. Grace changes everything. Now let's look at verses 1 through 2 in God's word. May it come to us as a means of grace even now. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Remember, we left off last week in Ruth 3.18, wondering what was going to happen. Ruth had returned home to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi said, who are you? Meaning, are you Mrs. Boaz now? Did he marry you? Ruth said he said he would take care of it. And Naomi reinforced that truth. He will not go to sleep. He will not rest. He will not do anything until he settled the matter today of redeeming us. Boaz, I argued, went to Starbucks. I have no proof of that in the text. But he went to Starbucks, got a coffee, and was putting together his plan. How can I get this? other redeemer, this close relative, possibly a cousin of his, how can I get him to say no to redeeming Ruth and Naomi that I might be able to do it? So we come to the passage today and Boaz goes to the city gates. The text says he had gone up to the gate. This phrase, gone up to the gate, is an idiomatic expression in Hebrew. It means to go to court. The city gates were designed to uh, keep enemies 
out when they're at war. They would shut the gates at night so that people wouldn't come in. There were these tall towers scattered alongside of it with these windows so they could do battle. But the city gates were also a place where people did business. This was like city hall. This was a courtroom where administrative and judicial business of the city was conducted. This was a place where people would gather and, you know, buy that 25-cent cup of coffee with unlimited refills, and you would sit and talk with people. All of that took place here at the city gates. So Boaz goes up to the city gate, also functioned as a courtroom, if you will, to settle the matter concerning Ruth and Naomi. Now, normally people would work all day, go back into the city, sleep at night, and come out in the morning. Boaz has stayed out by the grain. He doesn't want anybody to steal it. When it's light out, he goes to the city gate to catch everyone leaving the city as they go to work. Boaz did not want to miss his opportunity of settling the issue of redeeming Ruth and Naomi. So Boaz sits down and waits for people to start rolling out of the city. And guess who walks by? It's the other redeemer. It's the relative, perhaps a cousin of his. The guy who has first dibs on redeeming Ruth and Naomi and helping out their relatives out of this pickle that they're in. But notice what the narrator says here. He uses the word hanei. That word that means look, see, behold. And when it's used in scripture, it's an invitation from the author or the narrator for us, the audience, to actually climb into the scene and to see it with our own eyes. So the narrator is saying this. Come on into the story, guys. Look at this. You're not going to believe who just walked by. See it for yourselves. It's the other redeemer. Some people would call that happenstance or circumstance or luck, but we know it's sovereignty. What are the odds that the other Redeemer will show up? Very good when your God is Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. Now watch what happens here and how the narrator describes the situation in verse 1. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. What's interesting here is that Boaz calls his close relative friend. Certainly he knew his name. This wasn't like he was saying, hey, come over here, bro. Have a seat, dude. Come on over here, buddy, and have a, have a seat. The Hebrew phrase here is poloni almoni. And there's something for you to go and talk about today. There's some Hebrew for you. Poloni almoni. It sounds like a pasta, I think. Poloni almoni. Poloni almoni is literally translated a certain one. It's used, uh, some translations will say like the ESV, friend or my friend. Poloni almoni was this idiomatic expression which is used in the Hebrew Bible when people want to be ambiguous. It's used in 1 Samuel 21, 2 Kings 6 as such and such a place. So, Why does Boaz call him Poloni Almoni? Surely Boaz knew this guy's name. He knew he was the next in line as the Redeemer. He was a close relative. They lived in the small village of Bethlehem. But the narrator here purposely leaves out the name of this Redeemer. Why does he do that? I think Boaz probably called him by his name. Why does the narrator not include Poloni Almoni's name? Because as we will see, this other redeemer will not choose to carry on the name of Elimelech and Machlon, Ruth's deceased uh, father-in-law and husband. We will see in a moment that this other redeemer will not step up to the plate and demonstrate hesed, loyal covenant love by redeeming Naomi and Ruth. So with a form of poetic justice, 
this guy's name, his real name gets dropped out of the book of Ruth. I think some of the better translations of Poloni, Almoni are captured with phrases like this. The New English translation calls him John Doe. The JPS, New JPS, calls him so-and-so. So perhaps Mr. So-and-so, or Mr. No-Name, or John Doe, or What's-Your-Face, captures the idea best here for Poloni Almoni. In a chapter full of names, in a book full of names, where names are very, very significant. The other Redeemer does nothing memorable. He shows no hesed, no loyal covenant love to his family members. Therefore, the narrator and the author of the book leaves his name out of Israel's history forever. He chose not to marry Ruth, and continue the name of her deceased husband, Machlon. Therefore, his name will not be remembered by Israel. He goes down into the history book, the Bible, as Mr. So-and-so or Mr. No-Name or What's-Your-Face. So after Boaz gets Mr. So-and-so to sit down, he rounds up ten men to make up a quorum. The Hebrew word here says that he took... These men suggest that Boaz had to go and and find these men to make the quorum. And the fact that they left work or said, hey, I'll be late for work. I can't do this official business with you. The fact that they listened to Boaz suggests that he had some stature in the community. In addition, notice how Boaz is doing all of the initiating here. He goes to the gate. He tells Mr. So-and-so to have a seat. He finds 10 other people and he tells them to sit down. Boaz knows the principle that we learned last week that God moves when we marry our prayers and our plans. Boaz doesn't just rest in God's sovereignty and say, God, if it's meant to be, God's going to take care of it. No, he does what he needs to do. And in a moment, we'll see how clever and industrious he is as he proposes the plan of redeeming Ruth and Naomi to Mr. So-and-so. See, Boaz loves the Lord with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he loves his neighbor as himself. Boaz gets the gospel, so he's willing to give it away. Boaz has experienced God's grace, and grace changes everything. I think God's grace to him got down into his pores and got down into the nooks and crannies of his heart so that Boaz was changed by that. He wanted to step out and help a family member, a relative, who found themselves in the biggest pickle pickle possible because they're two dirt poor widows with nothing. Because he has experienced God's grace, it pushes him out to show grace to these women. So Boaz has all the elders present. Mr. So-and-so sits down. They sit on these plastered benches, which would have been built into the city walls there, and he presents his case. Look at verses 3 through 6 with me. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And Mr. So-and-so said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz says, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, 
you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So Boaz tells all the elders that are gathered there, and, and Mr. So-and-so, Poloni Almoni, tells her that Naomi is selling her plot of land. But how is she selling it? And if, if it was hers, why wasn't she gleaning on it? Here's probably what happened. Elimelech left for Moab, Naomi's husband, and likely sold his property to someone. So when Naomi returned, she had no rights to the land because there was another owner. She was too poor to buy back her own land. This is why things are so drastic for Naomi. She has no money. She can't go back and buy the property that's technically hers. It is also believed by some that widows could not own land in Israel, especially if they didn't have any boys, any heirs who would, who would rise up and help her take care of the land in the future. So Naomi has no rights to the land that is technically hers because her husband is dead. She has no boys. Machlon and Kilion are died, so she's in a rough spot here. What Naomi was banking on was a redeemer, a relative who would come along and step in and, and buy the rights back to the land. Until the Jubilee year. Now the Jubilee year was something that happened every 50 years where all land that was bought or sold would return to the original owner and the family. So Naomi is disposing of her rights here to buy back the line. And she's saying to Boaz or to Mr. So-and-so, whoever buys my land, I'm giving up my rights to buy it back. You buy it for me. And then in exchange, they would probably give her room and board. And then if she made it to the Jubilee year, They would all know that the land would legally come back to Naomi for good. But Naomi is too poor to buy the land back. Therefore, she's giving up her right to buy the land back and is offering the next closest relative, a redeemer, the option of buying her land back. And she's probably hoping, and we don't know from the story, that the Jubilee year will come along and she'll get her land back. So Boaz tells Mr. So-and-so that you're the next in line to buy it, buddy. And if you don't want it, then I want it. Now, it seems like a no-brainer for Mr. So-and-so at this point. You buy the land back from whoever owns it right now, because you have rights, you're part of family, because you're the next redeemer in line, and then you get to enjoy all the profits of the land until the Jubilee year. I mean, it seems like it's too good to be true. It's a win-win situation for Mr. So-and-so. Even more so for Mr. So-and-so, he knows Naomi. He knows that she's an old woman. He knows that she has no heir. He knows that she's an old widow. He knows if the Jubilee year was far off that she might not even make it until the Jubilee year. So this little investment for him would be good because if Naomi doesn't make it to the Jubilee year and she dies, there's no kids that it would go to and then the land would be his permanently. So Mr. So-and-so is making his decision. And we've got to feel the tension here because we're all pulling for Boaz and Ruth to get together. Remember, this is a romance story. This is the tension. We're hoping they get together we're feeling the tension like, oh, it's too good of a deal. The, guy's, the guy would be dumb to not take it. But he's going to take it. I know he is, and the story's going to end. That's what we're thinking. And feel the tension. And then Mr. Bo- Mr. So-and-so says, I'll take it, Boaz. Duh. Are you kidding? This is too good of a deal for me. But here we see the genius of Boaz in verses 5 through 6. He gets Mr. So-and-so to commit to the purchase of the land in front of the elders... 
And then he informs Mr. So-and-so that the day he redeems the field of Naomi, he must also take Ruth the Moabite to be his wife. It's pure genius on the part of Boaz. Can you imagine the scene as Mr. So-and-so goes home and tells his wife, and she says, how was work today, honey? I bought some land today. And guess what came with it? That young, exotic, beautiful Moabite girl that everybody's been talking about? Yeah, she came with the land, and I've got to do my part to make sure that she has kids. Mr. So-and-so is going to be sleeping on the couch tonight. He knows that. But Mr. So-and-so has been strategically reeled in by Boaz. Mr. So-and-so knows that, he ha- that if he has to marry Ruth when he purchases the land and carry on the name of Elimelech and Machlon, who's the son of Elimelech, then he will lose the land to Ruth's future children and the land will leave his hand. So if he marries Ruth and they have kids, then the land goes back to the kids that he has with Ruth. In addition, if he redeems Ruth and they have kids together, then some of his current property will be split between his kids that he has now and the kids that he might have with Ruth. And that's why he can't redeem it. That's why he tells Boaz in verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. I can't redeem it, Boaz. Because eventually it'll go to Ruth's kids and then I'll have to split my current property with the kids that I have with Ruth. That's not going to fly with my wife. It's, I can't impair my own inheritance. Mr. So-and-so was concerned with his own health and wealth and prosperity. He was not concerned with demonstrating hesed or loyal covenant love to a family member. He's trying desperately to hold on to all of his possessions, all that he holds dear. He was concerned more with all that he owned and how much he would lose instead of focusing on the needs of his extended families. He's not letting the gospel get into his heart. Because if he had, then he would be changed. And that's because grace changes everything. It's changed Boaz. God's grace releases radical risk-taking love. Grace frees you from your slavery to yourself. Grace breaks the shackles of your love affair with yourself. Grace liberates you from safety and security. Grace catapults you out of the kingdom of self into the kingdom of God. Grace opens your eyes to see that to die to yourself and what you want and what you wish for To die to that is to truly live. Grace enables you to look to the interests of others. Grace enables you, like Philippians 2 says, to consider other people more important than yourself. It'll only happen if you get it down into the nooks and crannies of your heart. And that's apparently what happened with Boaz. So they exchange the land. You see that in verse 7. We get this parenthetical note here describing the custom of business transactions during the time of the judges. Now, this was the custom in former times, it says in verse 7, in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. 
So the author at this point has to give us this little parenthetical note to explain what's happening because when he was writing the book of Ruth during the time of King David to validate King David's throne because these are David's ancestors and here's how David's ancestors act. They show hesed, loyal covenant love to people. So as it's being written during the time of King David, he has to give it this little parenthetical note because the people in his day would have scratched their head and say, why did he take his sandal off and give it to Boaz? Okay, so here's what's happening. Why remove the sandal? It was kind of a, the way we would shake hands or, or sign a contract. This was their way of making something official. But why remove the, 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 the sandal? Why not shake on it? The reason they removed the sandal is probably due to the fact that sandals made the closest contact with the land. By removing your sandal, you were physically demonstrating the removal of your right to walk on it and to work it. You're saying, this land doesn't belong to me. So we get this parenthetical note here so that we're not confused, saying, this is really weird. He's just giving him his sandal. Now look at verse 8 and see what happens. Now, when the Redeemer said to Boaz... So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. I kind of picture him trying to unlace that thing as fast as he can. He's like, I do not want to impair my inheritance. Are you kidding? Get this thing off. Take my sandal. Whew, done. You go redeem Ruth. Because I want nothing of that. Now look at verses 9 through 10. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Machlon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Machlon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Boaz now calls on the elders to witness this act of hesed, this act of loyal covenant love. Boaz buys all the land back that belonged to Elimelech and Machlon and Kilion. We're not sure how much land they had. But remember, the wheat and the barley harvests are over at this moment. It's not like he's buying it two months ago when the harvest is coming in. The the fields have been stripped bare. It's not like he's going to get an immediate return on his investment here. He's losing out until the next season. It was sacrificial. But he also bought Ruth to be his wife. But notice the reason he gives in verse 10. He doesn't say she's the beautiful exotic woman from Moab. Look what he says in verse 10. Here's why he's doing it. To perpetuate the name of the dead. That's Elimelech and Machlon. In his inheritance. That the name of the dead, Elimelech and his son Machlon, may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. Boaz wants to do his part to continue the name of Elimelech and his sons, particularly Machlon, the deceased husband of Ruth. That's Hesed. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to lose out financially. I'm a single guy. He hasn't been married yet. I'm going to marry this woman so that she can have kids, so that her husband's name will continue throughout our history. Now do you see why the narrator described the closest redeemer as Poloni Almoni, Mr. So-and-so, because he did nothing to continue the name of Elimelech and Machlon, but Boaz does that. And I think that Boaz does that because he has faith in Yahweh, trust in the Lord. He does not trust in what he possesses, 
Boaz has experienced God's grace and grace changes everything. God's grace releases radical, risk-taking love. Grace frees you from the slavery to self. Grace breaks the shackles of your love affair with yourself. Grace liberates you from safety and security. Grace catapults you out of the kingdom of self into the kingdom of God. Grace opens your eyes to see that to die to self is to truly live. Grace enables you to look to the interests of others and to see other people as more important than yourself. Can you say that today? Can you say that other people are more important than me? I told you you were madly in love with yourself because we all are, aren't we? We worship the person that we see in the mirror. We want our own way. The test of faith is not in how secure you are, how blessed you are, how safe you are. It's in demonstrating hesed, loyal covenant love to other people. When you see people giving up stuff, material things, their rights, their wants, their wishes, and you see people sacrificing for others, you know that that person has faith and their security is not wrapped up in stuff and in things, but in God. I love what Pastor Vody Bauckham said. There's nothing wrong with having stuff as long as stuff does not have you. Let me ask you today. Does stuff have you? Where's your treasure? Does stuff have you? Maybe it's I'm working hard to get the second house, the vacation home. Maybe it's working hard to get the sports car, or maybe you already have those things. I don't know what it is for you. I'm not interested in those things. Those things do not appeal to me. I'm not interested in a second house. I have trouble keeping one clean, okay? I'm not interested in some fancy car. You know what I'm interested in? You know the stuff that gets me? I want my way in every relationship and in every conversation, okay? You can have all that stuff. I'm not interested in working hard for that. I work hard so that I come out number one and I always get my way. That's the stuff that I'm interested in. My rights, my wishes, my wants. Some of us long for those other things, the shiny, sparkly things that the world holds out to us and says, if you have this. Now, there's some of those things I would like. Don't get me wrong, okay? But for the most part, the thing that gets me is I just want my way all the time. And then Jesus comes along and challenges me for where I've placed my treasure, which is in myself. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. O you of little faith. 
oh, Benji Magnus of little faith. How Jesus' words penetrate my wicked and selfish and sinful heart because I treasure things of the earth. And I treasure getting my way in every situation. Oh, that we would be like Boaz, who is a picture of Jesus. Oh, that we would be a church that loved God and others so much that we gave away our time and our talent and our treasures. Oh, that grace would change us to die to self and to risk bringing good to others. That we would not worry about ourselves, but trust God and that we'd minister to others and not be consumed by the fear of the plundering of our property, a la Hebrews 10.34. Oh, that we would understand God's grace because grace changes everything. Grace releases radical risk-taking love. Grace frees you from your slavery to self. Grace breaks the shackles of your love affair with yourself. Grace liberates you from safety and security. Grace catapults you out of the kingdom of self into the kingdom of God. Grace opens your eyes to see that, to die to self, to die to what you want, to die to what I want, to die to our wishes and desires. To die to that is to truly live. And we've bought the lie that to get your way is to truly live. That's anti-gospel. It's anti-Jesus. Grace opens your eyes to see others as more important than yourself. Grace changes everything. May we become a church whose faith is measured not by what we have, but by what we give away, by what we give up. Namely, our rights and our wishes and our wants. May we become a people who give and give and give and give loyal covenant love away. The million dollar question that should be ringing through your head right now that you want me to answer is, what if I don't want to do those things? What if I like getting my way and I don't want to change? See, I told you you're in love with yourself because maybe you're thinking that. I don't want to love my spouse the way I'm supposed to. I don't want to love my kids or my neighbors or coworkers or people here at church the way I'm supposed to. What if I don't want to? I would say to you what I've been saying to you for over a year now is that you need to rehearse the gospel. You need to do what Paul says in Acts 20, 35 when he speaks to the Ephesian elders and he says, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. You've got to remind yourself. You've got to think about your condition when you were born dead in your trespasses and sins and how God moved and how God initiated that and came to you. Because spiritually, you are six feet underground in a coffin. And God, in his great love through his son, Jesus Christ, came with a shovel to dig up your coffin and to open it up and to dust all the cobwebs off of the deadness of your spirituality, your your sins and your trespasses. And he made you alive. He caused you to see. He opened your eyes. You were dead. He made you alive. Then he opened your eyes to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God as it shone forth in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. He gave you ears to hear and to respond. His spirit regenerated you and did that work of salvation in you. And so when you think about that and you think, I was dead, I was an enemy, I hated him, and he did this to me, then how can I not show grace to other people? You rehearse the gospel. And you remember what God has done for you when you were his enemy. You hated him and he came to you in love. 
And you keep reminding yourself of that and you rub it into your pores and you get it down into the nooks and crannies of your heart. And when you do, when your spouse says, honey, will you rub my back? And it's been a long day at work for you. If you've got Jesus down in your heart, you'll say absolutely because it is better to give than to receive. And when your kids say, dad, will you play checkers with me? And all you want to do is turn on sports center and put your feet up. You'll say, absolutely, son. Because of what Jesus has done when he came to me. And when the, that co-worker that you can't stand says they're moving this weekend. And they're like, will you help me move? And you're scrambling to come up with something so that you don't go. And you might even risk making up a lie just to get out of it. Because you don't want to be around them. You might say, absolutely, I'll come help you move. That's what grace does. God's grace changes Everything changes every relationship, every situation. And when you find those times where you say, I don't want to serve. I don't want to be like Boaz. I don't want to be like Jesus and give up my rights. You rehearse the gospel and God's grace will begin to change you. May we become like our Savior who gave up all of his rights and became a slave and a servant and a nobody. The gospel message is clear. God gave up his son Jesus to bring us sinners to him. Have you repented of your sins? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ today? Is he your treasure? Is he your delight? Can you say today that to live is Christ? Not second vacation home. Not cool sports car, not getting your way in every relationship or whatever it is, the idols that we set up. Can you say that to live is Christ? Yes. Nothing against the second vacation home because if you got one, I may want to go there some weekend. But can you say today that my, my treasure in this life is Jesus? He's what I'm clinging to. To live is Christ and to die is what? gain. I can leave behind the home. I can leave behind the car. I can leave behind the money. I can leave behind my family because it's gain when I get Jesus. Is he your treasure? Is he your everything? Can you say with the psalmist this morning that you, O God, have put more joy in my heart than the world has when their wine and their grain abound? Is Jesus everything to you when he is? And you appreciate and value and love and cherish his grace. And you rub it into your pores and get it down into the nooks and crannies of your heart. It will begin to change the way that you deal with other people. And you'll do things like Boaz did. You'll sacrifice to bring good to others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I'm I'm convicted again, even the second time here, preaching it. Because I love me and I have idols that I worship and God I confess this morning that I need you I need some good old fashioned gospel rehearsal to see that to truly live is to die to everything that I want everything that I want in this church in my home, work neighborhood, in this city God we need to truly see that to live is to be like your son Jesus, to give up our rights, to have this mind among ourselves which was in Christ Jesus. Will you enable us by the power of your spirit this morning to begin to do that? And when we blow it, and we will, we'll blow it this afternoon, 
God, may we remember that only your son Jesus is perfect. And may we embrace your forgiveness and move on once again to extend your grace to others. Help us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.